Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Strap on your parachute. It's time for What Goes Up with Sarah Ponzik and Mike Regan. Hello and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor at Bloomberg. This week on the show, October of 2020 has brought plenty of surprises. President Trump was diagnosed with COVID-19, along with many other in the top ranks of the White House. And on top of that, antitrust regulation is back in the spotlight for mega cap tech companies. Still, the stock market hasn't seemed too bothered. And instead, financial markets look to be pricing in reflation once again. But Sarah, the big surprise of the week for our listeners out there is Sarah got herself a puppy. I did impulsively. I did. Uh, I, I went to get a dog for my parents, and then I ended up buying one of the siblings for myself. Um, so I'm really hoping she doesn't wake up in the middle of this because she's laying on the floor right next to me. I just pooped her out um, right before we all walked on. I was trying to run her around the apartment as much as possible. Oh, okay. But pooped her out could could have a couple meanings. I, d- I didn't know which one you were you're using there. I got you. I, you know, I've made a lot of in, in, impulse purchases in my life, but never uh, a, a golden doodle. That's a big one. That, that's a that's a big impulse purchase. I, I applaud you, though. As an, a co-owner of a, a golden doodle, I'm very happy for you. In fact, I showed the picture to my kids and they were like, the middle one was like, you should have the two dogs bark at each other on the podcast. And, and I thought that was a great idea. What do you think? It's a great idea, but I don't know if our guests will be too appreciative of that or, or our producer, for a matter of fact, um, but, but maybe later, Mike. Probably more insightful than the first presidential debate, so um, <laughs> I'd be open to it. Honestly, very good point. And more civil, too. <laughs> All right, Sarah, fine. You be the party pooper. No dogs on this podcast. She's sleeping maybe, right now. I can't wake her up. <laughs> All right. All right, All right fine. That voice you heard, that's our guest. Uh, first time on the show, we're very happy to have him. His name is Max Gockman. He is the head of asset allocation at Pacific Life Fund Advisors over in Newport Beach, California. Max, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We end up having a lot of people from Newport Beach, California on the show, sir. I think we need to get out there and hold a podcast in person in Newport Beach sometime. It seems like it's either Newport Beach or New Jersey. Two extremes. Yeah. <laughs> Almost no difference. Right. <laughs> really basically the same thing. The same thing. That's right. No boardwalks in uh, Newport Beach as far as I know, though. No turnpikes uh, either. <laughs> That's a good thing. That's a good thing. You're selling me on it. Well, Max, let's uh, let's get started here. Um, you know, as the head of, of asset allocation, I feel like it's, it's a tricky time. You know, uh, bond yields are so super low. Equity valuations are super high, at least uh, historically compared to themselves. I guess if you go back and look at those bond yields, they don't look as high uh, as normal. 
how how are you wrapping your head around the valuations in both markets this year? What what are you telling clients? Uh, what, you know, what's your your basic advice to someone trying to get some kind of real yield in this crazy world? Sure. Um, well, it's it's been an interesting time, obviously. Uh, to st- to just start up by saying the most obvious thing. Uh, the other thing is um, for us, we've been a bit more dynamic this year, and uh, we actually started the year fairly neutral. Uh, we saw that the market was, you know, priced to perfection and didn't see a lot of upside opportunities. We actually, uh, in our year beginning outlook, said there's probably going to be about a 10% correction. That'll be a good tactical uh, time to dip back into equities. We were very wrong on the uh, magnitude of that correction, of course, but we did have the right idea. So we wound up adding risk into the portfolio right around March 20th. And that was really predicated on one of those situations that you really hope to uh, experience as an investor, where everyone is going one way and to such an extreme that the contrarian call suddenly seems very, very rational. So when folks are selling treasuries and gold um, and just moving into money markets, you know, all else being equal, you would say, well, that's probably a time to take the other side of that. But when you also have uh, a fiscal package that dwarfs TARP about to be uh, put through, that, you know, really adds a lot of tailwind. So that's how we got risk on uh, late March. And then over the last quarter, we really put all our bulls back in the pen. Um, and Sarah, you, you and I have spoken about that a couple of times. But, you know, the market was making new record highs, but the recovery actually started decelerating. And we think that permabulls may wind up running off the fiscal cliff uh, before the year is out this year. So what do we do now? If you're looking for real yield, I would say dividends are not a bad way to go. I think more defensive plays within that space, like utilities, are actually going to give you a decent yield. We think that high yield credit is also remains attractive. Spreads can tighten a bit more. The Fed has that massive backstop and high yield is the biggest beneficiary of that. So for investors looking to uh, to find yield in uh, a desert of ZERP, that would be hmm. what we'd say. So if we are seeing a deceleration in the economy, at least from that very strong recovery that we had seen coming off the bottoms since March, and at the same time, there is concern over will or will we not get another fiscal package? As you mentioned, we might fall off that fiscal cliff. Why is it that we are seeing this reflation trade resume? I mean, we look at 10-year, 30-year treasury yields now at the highest since early June. We're seeing small caps, value cyclicals start to outperform. How is it possible that this is happening when so many of those concerns still exist? So that's a really good question. And I think there's two possibilities, right? Because I never want to say, well, this is what investors are thinking because I'm only one investor. But one is uh, there's, and this is what I would say is most likely, is that there's an understanding that we're going to see much more fiscal stimulus. That fiscal stimulus is going to have to have, you know, by Newton's third law of thermodynamics, an equal and opposite reaction. That's going to be massive treasury issuance. So if we're issuing a lot more treasuries, the curve is going to steepen on that longer end. And I think that's why yields are going up. The other and related reason is if the Fed does go into yield curve control mode, then uh, that in and of itself will uh, will be inflationary as well. So how would you envision the yield curve control? Would it be to allow sort of a gradual steepening, but not a really sort of sharp move one way or the other? Is that 
Is that kind of the safest bet, do you think? I think it would be gradual. I mean, certainly the Fed would intend for it to be gradual. But one problem uh, with YCC is that it's very open-ended and market-dependent. So, um, you know, let's look at Japan, for example. In 2016, they announced yield curve control, and they actually had to buy a lot less JGBs since then. We may get a very different experiment uh, result in the U.S., and that's where the curve could move quicker. I think the Fed would try to slowly phase it in and be very, very clear about that. Powell's, I think, learned the importance of being very predictable as Fed chair. So most likely we could allow for a gradual steepening, but still a steepening to a level where it's advantageous for for the Treasury. So if we have inflation go up at the same time as yields are capped at a low rate, then you're actually issuing negative real rate debt. And if you look at CBO forecasts and do a little bit of uh, arithmetic, you can actually see that that's what they expect for 2027. They're actually expecting that the average real yield of new treasury debt is going to be negative. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So you have a real yield of treasuries that's going to be negative. Is this almost the perfect coalescence of a bullish environment? I mean, okay, you have COVID-19 in the picture, still very much with us. But if we get more fiscal stimulus, yields start rising, it forces the Fed to start doing more asset purchases on the long end to keep them suppressed. All of a sudden, you have plenty of liquidity in the system and you have extremely, extremely low yields, even in an environment where we're still coming back from a recession. Yeah, I, I would say as we look into 2021, we are seeing the potential for uh, for growth to really come back. In fact, uh, one of the reasons we've more recently tilted into value stocks and away from growth stocks, even as we've, again, you know, more near term scaled down our, our risk to be fully neutral, is because we do anticipate that growth will pick up. And above trend growth is exactly what value needs and hasn't had in the last 14 years to accelerate. So, so yeah, it's uh, it's could be that perfect storm in that regard, Sarah. Now, Max, do you think a steepening of the yield curve, you know, like I said at the beginning, uh, sort of the case for equities is that, yes, valuations are, are high, but, you know, with bond yields near historically low, especially, you know, 10 to, 10 to 30 year space, you know, from that valuation metrics, uh, equities still don't look too frothy. Um, what would that gradual steepening of the yield curve 
do for valuations? Is there enough earnings potential next year uh, to keep this rally going? Or will we see some sort of compression in valuations if that curve steepens and, and maybe a, a rocky road for equities in, in 2021? So I, I think it depends on where you look within the equity market. When we look at tech, uh, which has obviously been uh, both, interestingly, a momentum and a defensive play this year, we have seen earnings run up so much that those valuations are um, going to be tricky to justify. So I think that's where you're going to have some, some issues. I, I think there's a saturation, even if we think of like the work from home theme. Right. We've all bought fancy microphones and cameras and we've all added Disney Plus and Hulu and Netflix, bought our Zoom premium packages. So there is that saturation that that's there. I don't see that expectation in the, in the earnings revisions, which have only gotten higher and higher. So eventually, you know, you're, you're going uh, into the shed and taking out a pole vault to uh, get over that bar just to, uh, you know, meet expectations. I, I think that's where it's going to be a little trickier. Conversely, there's going to be more downtrodden sectors. Uh, and again, I'll point to, uh, to value where investors have been you know, largely ignoring it. And um, it still remains well, well behind uh, growth. In fact, it's still down year to date where I think valuations are a lot more reasonable. And at the same time, as, as is typically the case, when the economy is roaring, investors stop paying a higher premium. So I, I think all that is going to coalesce into... Uh, a really good situation for, again, certain uh, value sectors will probably be a lot more tricky for tech. And we haven't even touched on uh, the prospects of, uh, you know, tech regulation. Max, I think you just dropped a hint for us to point out how great your audio is, because Max was one of those who went out and bought himself a fancy microphone. He has, I think, a fancier one than both Mike and I. So <laughs> he was prepared for this. <laughs> But Max, you, you, you bring up tech regulation, and I do want to ask you about this, because this past week, we did hear once again um, from members of Congress and those on Capitol Hill uh, talking about antitrust regulation for these very, very large mega cap tech companies that have just been leaders for so long and have just grown into almost monopolies. And this has been discussed for a while, but it did seem like this report that was released uh, had a little bit more meat on its bones. However, at the same time, it didn't seem like any of these companies in the stock market seemed to care. They Sure, we might be seeing a rotation out of tech a bit. Um, over the past five days, tech is one of the worst performing sectors. Is anything different this time? Is there any reason to really believe that we are going to see politicians, policymakers go ahead and actually implement this policy and make some changes? Uh, I, I believe there is. And I also believe the fact that the market doesn't seem to care is exactly what makes um, being underweight tech an attractive trade because you kind of want to be contrarian on, on regulatory arbitrage. So th the reason why I think it's different this time is because tech regulation is bipartisan. The reason for regulating tech are different. So, you know, if we fast forward past November, December, whenever we you know find out uh, the result of the election, and we have a new pre president in Congress, then if it's a Republican-controlled Congress and White House, then they'll focus on perceived anti-conservative bias as a reason to really suppress uh, social media companies and Alphabet. If it is a uh, more Democrat-controlled uh, Congress, well, I think, you know, really, we've been talking about a blue wave 
uh, a lot. And I think a blue wave is really going to be a tsunami that drowns the tech giants because the antitrust findings that have been found by that panel, which is largely, uh, you know, Democrat controlled because it's in the House. Uh, I, I think they're pretty substantial and, they're, and, and it's going to be hard to for Amazon, for Apple, for Google to say that their marketplaces really are um, not infringing on companies. I mean, there's been so much more momentum and there's also been a much more momentum within the public, within the electorate to say, yeah, we have concerns about privacy. Yeah, we are hearing from small businesses who are getting pressured by Amazon. There's a lot of developers who complain about Apple's uh, you know, control of the App Store. So all those things create a very different environment than what we saw in, uh, in years prior. And so regardless of November's outcome, it just doesn't look good for tech. I don't think it's going to be an overnight thing. I don't think this is something where, you know, end of Q1, we have massive antitrust regulation going through for, uh, for tech, but it's going to be a structural theme. And eventually investors are going to have to care when those proceedings are really uh, gaining steam. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. All right, Max, I've been looking, thinking about the antitrust issue from a different angle, and I'm not sure if it makes me a contrarian or just a, a deluded idiot. So so let me, let me know what you think. But, you know, if I'm an investor, say, in Facebook or Amazon, and Congress says, comes in and says, you have to break up these companies. Well, how it's done, I think, is important. You know, if, if Facebook were to say spin off, and I'm just making up these possible ways they could be broken up. Who knows how it could really be done? But say Facebook spins Instagram off uh, to shareholders or Amazon spins off uh, Amazon Web Services, their cloud business off to shareholders, or Apple spins off the App Store uh, to shareholders. Is that necessarily a bearish thing for these stocks in the long run? Um, you know, do those business synergies kind of outweigh uh, the potential benefits share- shareholders could get in a breakup if shareholders end up getting cash or, or stock in one of the units that's spun off? Yeah, that's that's a really fair question, actually. And I think the answer lies in the margins that you see tech companies have enjoyed, which are really actually one of the reasons we can justify their valuations to a certain extent and why we were fine owning them as an overweight earlier in the year before the most recent uh, run-ups. Once you spin off a division, you reduce your margin because you're just going to have more of the same uh, departments duplicated, right? So 
there's going to be a lot of additional hiring that'll need to happen. There won't be as much scale and cross-selling by definition, right? So Instagram can't cross-sell to Facebook, etc. First of all, they'd still be large businesses, right? Instagram on its own is a very large company. Um, but without Facebook as its parent, it's going to definitely find uh, a tougher time on uh, expanding and growing and doing so at, at, at a low uh, cost. And similarly, Facebook will lose one of its biggest growth engines because obviously, as although Facebook execs don't like talking about this too much, Instagram has really been the reason why uh, Facebook ha has done so well. So, so I think long term, it'll be interesting to see how these companies, once they're independent in whatever scenario that ultimately comes through, can really make a go of it themselves. But they are going to be competing with each other. And I don't think that's going to be a, a medium term certainly not a near-term bullish catalyst, longer term, we'll, we'll have to uh, reevaluate. Right. Yeah, pricing power goes down a lot, I guess, in that scenario. Mm -hmm. The point of antitrust, increased competition. Um, but speaking of competition, Mike, I, uh, I believe that it's that time. Oh, boy. It's that time. Did, did someone warn Max about our gimmick? Oh, he's prepared, aren't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm, I'm ready. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. All right, Sarah, let's start with you. What's the craziest thing you saw in markets this week? All right, so I will, I'm going to come clean, completely admit uh, I had help from our Crazy Things correspondent this week, but it is a really, really good one. So this was a story in the Financial Times, um, just from the headline, the start of it. It reads, Vatican used charity funds to bet on Hertz credit derivatives. <laughs> I love that story. That's good. Unbelievable. So essentially, I'll just read you read you a bit from the story from the FT. The Vatican invested some donations for the poor and needy in derivatives that bet on the credit worthiness of Hertz, the U.S. car rental company that defaulted on its debts earlier this year, according to documents seen by the FT. And it goes on and it says in 2018, Pope Francis said credit default swaps, quote, encouraged the growth of a finance of chance and of gambling on the failure of others, which is unacceptable from the ethical point of view. But the instruments, he said, were a ticking time bomb. Meanwhile, you have this going on in Hertz, supposedly. Um, so who are we dealing with? Uh, the Vatican? Robin Hood? Not really sure. <laughs> What's really interesting about that, Sarah, is it gives credence to uh, what Lloyd Blankfin uh, the former chairman of uh, Goldman Sachs said when uh, he mentioned they were doing God's work. So I guess they actually are. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> like, truly. I'd love to see the Vatican's P&L, though. It's, uh, you know, they have a pretty, uh, they have an investment arm of the Vatican. I'd, I'd love to see uh, see what their P&L is. That's the, that is a pretty good move going along uh, Hertz CDS. I think a lot of, a lot of fund managers probably wish they... Uh, they had found religion on that issue there. In hindsight, yeah, in hindsight. Um, we also had one, uh, we had someone tweet that I, I wanted to make sure I mentioned as well, Mike, also because they gave me a little props, which of course I have to play up if I have the chance. So, so uh, oh this comes from, I apologize if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, but uh, Karan Verdi at K Vora. And uh, he said, as it relates to Justin Bieber posting that picture of Crocs, sending Crocs shares soaring, he said, definitely to be mentioned in podcast for crazy things this week. And then he said, Mike can have it for next time. He's been lagging behind so far. So you hear that? You've been lagging behind so far, Mike? I, I don't know what podcast this guy's been listening to. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I don't know about that one. That is a, a good thing, though. We thank him for that contribution, the Justin Bieber. Also one from uh, Ben Emmons, who's been on the show, the strategist at 
uh, Medley Global Advisors, pointing out the guy, the programmer at Citigroup, who was uh, moonlighting as the head of a QAnon conspiracy theory website, and they uh, managed to fire that guy. I was wondering, Sarah, you know, in his employment agreement, what exactly they could fire this guy for. I mean, I guess there's a lot of material there they can work with. So they, they ended up getting rid of him. It, it is a little bit surprising. Uh, it, it makes me think about who, who we're surrounded at, with at work. Uh, if anyone's a <laughs> conspiracy <laughs> theorist. <laughs> I, it's kind of dangerous, though. You know, who, there could be a city group conspiracy theory website up now next. You know, they, they might be playing with fire there a little bit. Now Mike know. is we'll starting see. his own conspiracy theories. <laughs> All right, Max, what do you got for us? Well, I've got a three-course meal of madness for you guys. Um, We love that. So so first, uh, first course is fish and chips. And uh, I was just, I'm kind of amazed with Brexit hinging on basically Johnson and Macron agreeing on letting Frenchmen keep fishing in British waters. So uh, fishing rights (laughs) are uh, 0.1% of the British economy. Yet, uh, that is actually what's holding up Brexit right now. And Johnson went so far as to say, if we don't get a deal uh, by middle of uh, next next week or, you know, by October 15th, then uh, we're, we're walking. So uh, pr- pretty the, incredible. Are the, are the fish fresher in uh, certain bodies of water than others? So, so uh, <laughs> apparently fish in the British waters are very dominant and it's actually really important to uh to the french as well as other eu members to keep fishing there without restriction but uh aside from those fishermen i don't think it's really a reason to plunge uh, both economies into a deeper recession but you know <laughs> the eu is is never uh, never stopped short of uh, arguing over uh minuscule points um so so next course after our fish course we're going to go to steak and this was just a really <laughs> Great story that, that I that I saw. Um, actually, as I was, I was like, I wonder what I'm going to say for you know craziest thing in the markets. And all of a sudden, they get across my terminal. Salt Bay looking to delay payments on 2.7 billion dollars of debt. <laughs> so I, I guess the uh, the Salt Bay experience doesn't translate well into takeout. Well, you know, Max, I was actually I was walking by the Salt Bay restaurant the other day in Manhattan, and I was thinking, you know. I mean, it opened right before this all began. And I was thinking, you know, this can't possibly be going well, I would imagine. <laughs> uh, apparently not. And uh, it's 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 their parent company, which I was actually shocked. It's like, how does Salbe have $3 billion of debt to restructure? So once you, once you read past the headline, it's actually their holding company. But they are a Turkish holding company owning a lot of hospitality and restaurant assets. So um, looking uh, looking pretty tough there from the geopolitical and the sector stance so uh hopefully uh hopefully i don't know maybe they'll have salt bay go to the investor meetings and you know uh but i guess you can't because of COVID. so so really i, I don't know how we're going to dig themselves out of people this. would watch salt bay over zoom that's uh maybe. it'll be interesting to see and for my final course uh we're going to go to chicken and uh this is just a big story on Tyson and uh, the other poultry companies fixing chicken prices from 2012 to 2019. The, the craziest oh, yeah. thing about it to me is that actually Pilgrim's Pride uh, was up on, on the day and uh, Tyson didn't really move that much. So I don't really know how this doesn't send stocks down a little bit more. You, you'd think that a forthcoming indictment should should have more of an impact, but uh, 
I guess everyone believes that we'll just keep eating uh, chicken nuggets. <laughs> wow, Sarah, this guy's good. That's that's three solid crazy things right there. Yeah, three solid ones, but Max, I was hoping for some dessert too. So <laughs> next okay. time, well, you know, you, you, I always got to leave them wanting more. So uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll keep working on my menu for next time. <laughs> that's pretty good. All right, All right well, Mike, I'm gonna. Up, of course, I'm going back to the well of the alternative uh, investment space, Sarah. I, I also have a three a three part crazy thing. I don't know what it is, but I guess the in the fall this time of year, the art auctions really pick up steam. Uh, everyone's back from the Hamptons and wherever they go in California. I guess I, I guess it's always summer in California, so maybe it doesn't matter. But first one in art auction news. This is nuts. I did not realize Deutsche Bank is apparently one of the world's biggest owners of fine art. They have something like 50,000 pieces of art in the Deutsche Bank collection, uh, and they're going to sell about 200 of those going forward. Um, so that's the appetizer. The other one is an ar- a big art auction at Christie's, but sprinkled in with the art, they were selling a full-sized T-Rex skeleton. So someone dug up a Tyrannosaurus Rex skeleton, the whole thing. Um, and apparently that's very rare. I think the ones you see in museums usually are fakes. You know, they just recreate it. Full-length, full-size T-Rex skeleton. Sarah, you know what time it is. It's Price is Right. What would you Price pay for right. a full-size, oh, I knew this was coming. full-size T-Rex skeleton? Oh gosh, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go way up there this time because I do know someone who once dug up a woolly mammoth vertebrae, and I know that went for a good amount. So I would imagine T Rex full skeleton, say fifty million. <laughs> really, right, really Max, bringing what, it up. My, what? First of all, we're gonna have to talk about your friend who dug up a woolly mammoth. <laughs> Another time. <laughs> Another time. We'll save that. K- keep the, the listeners guessing because that's a that's a story I got to hear. Max, what's your bid for a full size T Rex skeleton? I, I got to come in a little bit higher than, than Sarah on on that. I would say seventy million. Seventy million. Both are pretty good bids. I got to say, if I ever start an auction house, you two are going to be my first points of contact. I'm getting you in on every bid. I think it was, and I apologize. I don't. I can't remember the exact number because my computer just died on me. But I believe it was thirty-two million. Oh wow! Okay, not horrible. The, the Bargain. Full, full size. Yeah. It, hopefully, whoever bought it is listening because they'll offer it to Sarah. I think next and, and Max for, for, get get a bidding war. Yeah, I'm gonna throw a, right. a T-Rex skeleton in my apartment with all the all the room <laughs> that I have currently. <laughs> all right, but that's not the craziest auction of the week. Someone, um, there's this art project in London that for some reason it's dedicated to promoting Bitcoin because there's not enough people, Sarah, out there promoting Bitcoin. They needed to get some artists involved. So what they did is they took all of the original code from, uh, what was the guy, Satoshi, uh, I forget his last name, Satoshi, the guy who, which by the way, was not even his real name, whatever, whoever the guy that originally coded Bitcoin. They took that original code and they cut it up into 40 pieces and they printed each one out on this big round disc uh, to look like a coin. And they're starting to sell them off one by one. Uh, Included in that disc is a 
a token. They call it a non-fungible token. So you get a Bitcoin token in this, but you know you can't go trade it uh, like you could any any other Bitcoin token. So I believe what Christie's uh, the auction house wanted for this thing was between I think twelve and eighteen thousand. Once again, price is right. What are you bidding, Max, for this Bitcoin token? Printed out. I think it's the first three hundred and some thousand digits of the code. Wow. Um, I would bid maybe ten thousand. Send a lowball. Yeah, lowball. Low yeah. I would. I would lowball too myself. I would. I, I would. I would lowball it. It's not a very pleasant looking piece of artwork per se. T-Rex, on the other hand, if I could put a T-Rex in my backyard, I'd, I'd bid that thing up. All right, Sarah, what's your bid? I'm sure your dog your would love the T-Rex. Um, so if you said 10,000 was lowballing it, I'll go for 50K. It was something like 150K. So, uh, you know, hey, oh, there's wow. Bitcoin. Well, we, we, we're completely off on both auctions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In fiat money, they as the Daily Bitcoin website okay. points out, it was fiat money. So what we need to do here is print the Bitcoin code on a T-Rex, and then oh. then we can go into the hundred million range. Whoa. Okay, that's that's the plan. That and Sarah, and that that is why Max is the head of asset allocation. It truly, the guy is. knows he has the guy knows how to put a portfolio together. He's got the creativity that you need. <laughs> All right, we I do think we're going to have to leave it there though. Remember you can always give us a call at our very own Bloomberg podcast hotline. That number is 646-324-3490. If you call us, leave us a message, we may even play it on the show. But Max Gockman, thanks so much for joining us this week. We really appreciate it. This was great. Thanks guys. And I am gonna I'm gonna name Max the winner with the the British fish thing. <laughs> that, that wins the week. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to you. Thank you. As painful as as it is for me to admit defeat, I gotta I gotta hand it to him on that one. Thanks, Max. What goes up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsek. Mike is at Reganonymous. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. Also, thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Jordan Gospore. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.